Hey there. This is a joint podcast between the Vassals of Kingsgrave and the Bastards of Kingsgrave. In this episode, we review two stories from George R. R. Martin's Thousand Worlds setting. If you would like to hear our previous reviews of Martin's short fiction, you can find them on the BOK podcast feed and the VOK YouTube channel. If you would like to read the stories, most of them are available in Martin's 2003 collection entitled Dream Songs. As usual, this is Amin, and I'm joined by our usual uh, reread group for George R. R. Martin's earlier works. Hi, I'm uh, Michael, or Mordian on the forums. Hey, this is Duncan, also known as Valkyrist on the forums. And this is Zach, also known as Alias on the forums. Cool. Good to have you guys back as we continue the longest-running reread of George's earlier works. This is kind of <laughs> the third in the the, the trilogy of uh, Duncan-led episodes as you got us back into uh, this whole reread now, Duncan, so I'll pass on the reins to you again to introduce uh, the stories we're covering today. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Amin. Um, so in this episode, we'll be reviewing two more short stories, which take place in Martin's Thousand Worlds universe. They are both set in the post-interregnum period, with the major human worlds having regained contact with one another after the collapse of the Federal Empire. Unlike the previous stories we've reviewed, these texts are set far away from human civilization and deal with distant alien cultures. So the first story we're looking at is called The Glass Flower, and it's a science fiction novelette first published in the September 1986 issue of Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine. It is set in Findy space on the planet of Crow and Denny, and it's about a body swapper who has lived for generations. She is challenged by a cyborg who also wants to gain the ability to body swap not to extend his life, but to end it. Um, in the introductory notes for Dream Songs, Martin states that the glass flower has the, quote, sad distinction of being the last published story in his Thousand Worlds universe. Uh, he wrote it to bring one of the touchstone names of the history, Cleronymus or Cleronymus or however you want to say it, uh, onto the stage. Um, so, yeah, what did you guys think of the glass flower? How many uh, artifacts would you give it? I'd give it... Uh... I'd give it at least four out of five uh, artifacts. I thought it was a solid story, and I didn't know it was the last one that he'd published, but it kind of makes sense that it was late in the se sequence of events here. And a lot of that goes in learning more about Clarnonymous. Like, I, I, liked, I liked getting that backstory, so that definitely made the story interesting for me. Yeah, I would probably, I'd say maybe maybe four and a half even. Um, I really like I like I like everything about it. I like the uh, the world building stuff is great. I guess I like the mental combat as well. But mm. probably the thing that I like the most is just the world building stuff. Finding out, you know, just like I don't know, all the character introductions and stuff. Like it's all it's a lot of interesting characters with interesting like power sets and stuff like that. And so I enjoyed it a lot. I'm not sure it's necessarily like a a great piece of fiction or anything, but I find it very enjoyable. I'm going to go all the way and give this five uh, artifacts. I think the premise itself was great. It was just a really engaging idea, and it built up really nicely into the actual mind game. At the end, I thought the characters were interesting, and it 
for like you guys say it filled in so much detail about the world and just the setting and everything like it, it gave me so much more context as someone who has only read a few of these stories about all of this stuff so i really enjoyed that aspect too and i just thought it was beautifully written i thought it was the best written of anything that we've read for this and, and like maybe like i don't know because it was later in the works it felt like his writing had just developed to a to a more to a more clear point of what his style was going to be. And I think you see some kind of connection between the way he writes this and the way that he writes some parts of a song of ice and fire. So I definitely felt that. And I just felt that it was a really just on, and on every level, I thought it was working really well. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought it was very imaginative, very twisty and very twisted story at times. Um, I thought that both the characters and the ideas were really well explored and complemented each other. Uh, I love learning a bit a bit more about the history of the Thousand Worlds, and in many ways, I think this story is almost about the universe as a whole. Um, I also really love the way the Game of Minds was used to explore the nature of things like religion versus science, life versus death, and even whether these concepts are actually opposed to one another. Um, I agree with you, Zach. I think the writing shows a level of skill and complexity that demonstrates Martin's maturation as a writer. I wasn't as compelled by the story as some of Martin's other works, but I thought it was very well done. So I'll give it three, three point seven five stars, or not stars, artifacts. <laughs> yeah, in the game of mine, there is no middle ground. <laughs> but actually, I, I, <laughs> so I just... you can see the, the the launching point in getting into Avalon here too. Like we're writing about Cleronymus and his backstory in Avalon, you can kind of see mm. an arc going in toward the Avalon novel, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, giving us a taster of that. So just a funny little story here. When I talk about how I first got into A Song of Ice and Fire, the books, I I say that when I first heard about it, this was after the show started airing, the only things I knew about it were the name Game of Thrones and the fact that there was a lot of nudity. So for some reason in my brain, what I conjured was like this weird science fiction thing where it's a bunch of naked people like having this weird cerebral game where they like fight each other in that way. And that's what this story was. I was like so surprised that this like weird conception in my head of what Game of Thrones was, was this. But I think there might be something something to that. Like the idea of like a game of something like just kind of conjures that that image in my head for some reason. But yeah, like as far as there being some kind of connection with the two, this was the weird mental one I had with this. Absolutely. Just, yeah, just different ingredients, but basically the same idea. Yeah. Here's a question based, just, just what are your thoughts on the title, the glass flower and, and the flower in the story? I mean, there's the, that parallel to the, the cyborg nature and like something being preserved and artificial. So I'm curious to see what your thoughts were on that. Um, I mean, I think it, it's, it's symbolic. It's something that's eternal, but synthetic. Mm. Um, so I think it's like, it's questioning, like both these characters have different things and maybe want different things. You know, what's, what's better. Do you want a long life or do you want a meaningful life? Like can life be meaningful if it's eternal or does part of what makes something meaningful is the fact that it has to grow and then die and decay. Like can a flower be beautiful if it's just everlasting or as part of the beauty of a flower that it eventually dies, that it's, it's beauty is only temporary. Well, the flower is right at the what? very end too. Sorry, go ahead, Michael. Oh no, I mean my thing is not it's not good or interesting. But um, I was just gonna say I I had a harder time with the with the metaphor, I guess, mm. um, just because you know I mean both I mean neither uh, Cleronymus or the glass flower is eternal, right? Like they're not becoming you know God in some sort of you know. Uh, Hmm. metaphysical way where, where they are actually eternal right i mean like there's still like physical things that will eventually um 
you know, decay and be destroyed, right? Like, so, like, mm. eternal isn't really eternal. And so the, that phrasing uh, or that way of conceptualizing it, I, I didn't like. Um, or I felt like it was, uh, I don't know, it, I guess it didn't land for me. I guess it may be the way to say it. Well, I, I mean, the question is, is there is anything truly eternal? And if so, is like, it, is it possible? To right. I think you have to go into spiritual. Like, yeah, I think you have to you have to make something spiritual to to start talking about the infinite and the eternal. Mm-hmm. I think if you're talking about the physical world, then the answer is pretty clearly no. <laughs> and I mean, it's, uh, it's just sort of like, especially I don't know, like, especially like a robot man, you know, or an, uh, a cyborg, whatever you want, we want to say. Um, although he has no physical or no uh, biological parts. Um, but um, like he says, like he has no passion and, you know, everything he views very coldly. And so and he's tired of viewing everything coldly and he wants some passion. And that's fine. Right. Like so if he wants to say, like, my, you know, crystal matrix brain, you know, does not allow me to have any passion, but it does allow me to have the desire for passion. Um, sure. OK, fine. Um, and for some reason, a biological brain will allow him, you know, path, actual passion. Uh, and so that's fine. Like, I mean, like, I can understand the motivation there. But like, especially like as like a, you know, cold, you know, emotionless, logical uh, being or whatever. Right. I mean, like the idea that like, I will never die. I will. I'm cursed to live forever. It's like, that's just not true. Like, I mean, he could easily destroy himself. Right. I mean, like that's just, or just the the sudden solar flare that he meant. Yeah, exactly. That they were talking about that could scour the planet. Yeah. <laughs> He's not immune to that either. Presumably. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But but he is in a different mode of existence as he as he hinted. Like I mean, he he can't he doesn't ever forget anything. For example, like it's always mm-hmm. so. So his experience is different, and it's as close as being eternal as possible in the physical world perhaps yeah absolutely and so like i could i that's what i was saying like i didn't like the way it was conceptualized right like i mean if he if he was just saying like i just don't like the way like i don't i don't like the way i feel like everything is like too stark and real and and i want things to be more you know more iffy more shades of gray you know like oh i forget some things i embroider some things like nothing's i don't want to be perfect anymore like i can understand that Mm -hmm. that conceptualizing Whereas, like, the, but the way they were conceptualizing it, that's the other thing, right, is that she's basically eternal, too. I mean, like, only as long as, you know, the machine keeps running and, and people keep bringing her slaves or whatever. But, you know, she's essentially, she's eternal, too, for as long as the process works. Um, although, I guess you could take the artifact and go on the road, too. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's different ideas of um, what life is. Is life a body or is it a mind? So, so the cyborg might have an not an eternal body, but a, a body that can last a long time, whereas she has a mind that can move between bodies, but it gets very ambiguous about what, what even is the person, what is the soul, because it seems like hmm. when she moves into a new body, the, the, the residual memories or that sort of take over her her memory or get mixed in or so I liked all that, all that questioning about what is the soul? Uh, is there a permanent sense of self or is self just a, a combination of, you know, uh, almost thought of in a mechanical sense? Is it just like raw memory or, or raw materials that blends with your, with your consciousness and it just becomes your new sense of self? Like there's no permanent sense of self. It's just a mix of different stimulation. Well, it goes to the question of uh, like, do you, this cyborg that we see in the story, is that, Claronymus, like, do you do you, do you treat the, was that Claronymus there, or is that what is that? Would you view him? No, I don't. I don't think so. I, I mean, I know she definitely did. I mean, I think she said explicitly, you know, we are the memories, right? Like, you know, so a perfect a perfect sketch of someone's memories is the person. Um, 
And I think that, I mean, like, you know, that falls apart so quickly just because, well, I mean, not necessarily falls apart, but it means that you have to either uh, change your definition or accept that you could have, you know, 50 million or, you know, 50, whatever, the number doesn't matter. You could have as many copies as you want to, and they would all be the person and they can't all be the person, right? Like they all have to be. And so, you know, I don't, I don't, I have, I've made my peace with sci-fi, uh, that likes to say that, but I don't. Mm. I don't think that. I think as soon as you copy somebody, uh, you're. It's not really the person anymore. Like Star Trek, they're all just dying constantly. Right. The uh, the phasing yeah, theoretical right. question. Right. Yeah. Well, they kind of mention that in, even in this story, he says like you, you we're both that for this moment, and now we're going to be something else. At least, even if you accept it, you can be a copy. It changes immediately. Like it didn't have yeah. experiences. Right, yeah, so yeah. at the end they talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of think it is Chloronymous in a way, in the same way that Cyrene is still Cyrene, even though she's moved between multiple bodies and become a different person in each body, in a way. She still has some continuity back to her original self. So in the same way, Chloronymous still has some continuity, if it's in memory form, even if it's been merged with another consciousness. It's kind of still, the consciousness is still there in a way. I don't know, but again, it's hard to quantify, because even really- Chloronymous... Even Chloronymus, the original Chloronymus, stopped being Chloronymus at a certain point because he became a cyborg. Like he died as a human and then was resurrected as a cyborg. Is that still Chloronymus, or is that a new right? I mean, like, and yeah, I think I think there's a perfect, you know, a decent argument about, you know, like, I'm am I really the same person that I was when I was eight? Like, there's Mm. a continuity, Mm. certainly, but like, in in what sense am I actually the same person? But yeah, but even the cells in your body are dying and being replaced, right? So yeah, yeah, it's it's like it's just folds into that, right? It just folds into that larger philosophical question that I don't think we can really have a firm answer on, right? Like, if you are simply your memories and and that is what composes you, then yes, it is. They are the same people, but if there is some deeper aspect of what defines you. And that's just that's just everyone's personal opinion, I guess, if that's true or not. And I, I think that's kind of what the story is trying to get at and what a lot of you know philosophy seems to get at, that there is this permanent sense of self or there is this continuous sense of self or is there or isn't there. But you can feel it in a way. There's just like even looking at your own life, like you think back, all right, I'm a completely different person than I was five, ten years ago, whatever it is. My body has completely changed but I feel like a permanent sense of self, like a, just a mental familiarity with what it's like to be me and the way I, I, I interpret the world. I don't know. There's there's something there, even if you can't quite quantify it, that it seems to be uh, directing us to. Yeah, the, the view of the story, it seems to be, uh, I mean, it's a materialistic view. And then it's you, you could be in uh, this crystal or you can be in rotting flesh. It's just all the same thing. It's just, it's just the sum of the memories with an, with an operating system. There's... That's like the materialistic view of it, right? Or, or are you saying even in a materialistic view, there might be a, a counter to that? Uh, well, I don't know if it can be explained mm. like, materialistically. I guess it could be in like a neurological way, like the development of the mind. I don't know. I don't know. Because like, what if you have your memory wiped? Um, mm. Are you still you? Blah, blah, blah. It gets all these just what ifs that mm. that are fun to ask, but it's hard to get a real answer. But I think like the, the religious interpretation of it has always been like there's a soul. There's a soul in the body that's yours and that's you. Um, and this, this story seems to be playing around with that because Cyrene has a more mystical, magical spiritual point of view and then the, the the cyborg is very logical and rational and scientific um mm. but i think it's that that tug of war about what is the soul is really interesting and yet this is the fun reversal of the story right because 
the cyborg is the one who values life in a way that the the more biological human whatever you want to describe it character does not like he he values the finite aspect of life of living it in that fashion and then dying in that natural cycle and just the natural aspect of it whereas sirene wants to live forever and sees that as the ultimate like ascension of what it means to be a person whereas that is obviously less natural it's not what was supposed to happen yeah yeah um and i think they kind of grass is always greener maybe mm-hmm. like they want what they don't have are they both yeah, happy at I, the end of the story that's that's the good question right yeah i think I'd, what i what i like is that they both get what they want it's not like a oh i won they both get exactly what they wanted in this exchange and we don't and the, i don't think the story is telling us whether or not they get a happy ending like if one choice is right or the other is right i think i think it's pretty ambiguous which i think is good yeah i agree just a couple of some other side questions of stuff we saw we saw sebastian <laughs> kale who's floating in a tank and he's named a liar. It kind of a, reminds you of that other one from uh, Way of Cross and Dragon, right? Another telepath. Or is he, I don't know if yeah. he's a telepath, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I was wondering, because right? the description of him is very similar. Um, John Azure, someone, was the name of the little person in um, the Way of Cross and Dragon. And I was wondering, because that character leaves his planet, I was wondering if it was the same character that pops up in this story under a different name. But maybe this is just a particular type of telepath that's what they look like seems like a reference to dune maybe didn't they have like some these kind of things in like liquid or something they have a lot of mental powers or something in dune i don't uh, think they were liquid ones like mentats do you mean yeah no, there, were, there, were, there were these like there were these like these guys that eat spice and then they sit in a tank or something like uh, these like they become that, the tank thing might be the movie i haven't read oh. all the dune books so but if you're if you're yeah. thinking like there's a lot of there's some weirdness in that well not some there's a lot of weirdness in that movie <laughs> <laughs> but there are definitely people i mean you definitely can can strengthen and and uh gain psychic powers from eating spice so hmm. you're i mean that's you're somewhere somewhere in there there's you know i think what you're saying is basically correct so seven players for the game of mind interesting did they um was I, I i perhaps just didn't read closely enough was that did y'all get the impression that the seven players that's a fixed thing uh, uh that the artifact demands or was that just like the the room that she built was for seven players hmm. how i guess that's a interesting question how much agency or control over everything does the artifact itself have like yeah. does, it, does it direct this in any way? Like I didn't get that impression personally, but I guess it is what yeah, it fuels it the didn't capacity. Seem like it. Yeah, it seemed like. I mean, it acknowledged. I guess to some, it acknowledges a, a master, right? Um, I think she says that when she sits down. But other than that, I'm not sure. Perhaps that that amount of possibility is all it's capable of uh, powering. Like three, you know, three or seven options. Right. You think? Or, but so could it be combination? CPU. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that combination of switches is all it's capable of. You add another person, it's, it's too many possibilities. It makes sense if there's if it's odd, whatever it is, right? The, the person who runs it, and then equal numbers. Otherwise, mm, yeah, mm-hmm. and I assume the idea of having half of them just be prey um, was was an addition made by Sirene, but mm. that wasn't how it was supposed to go. Yeah, right. I I would think so too. That's what made me. I think that may may have been like what made me start thinking about like is seven a number that's actually intrinsic to the artifact, or did she just make up seven as being like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> well, she talks about how a lot of these people were basically taken out of jails or other bad situations but then it's also 
not clear. Like it's, it's almost like a lie they tell themselves. Like they're putting a lot of just innocent people in here, or people that would. Yeah, yeah she basically says she she doesn't consider herself a yeah a slave, slave master um, because she gives them a chance, I guess. Even though that's clear. And also, but well, I mean, and she also says she doesn't own them, right? Like she just she kidnaps right. them, puts them through this thing, but then they she lets them go, like. You know, no it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there's some religious significance to the number because she she refers to herself as Jesus Christ and she she has her apostles. Hmm. So I wonder if the three the three on each side is like you know the Holy Trinity or something like that. Mm-hmm. Martin was playing a bit with the number seven, maybe like this is one example. So he's using number seven. Siren herself mm-hmm. in, in her current body, the description actually looks quite a bit like Danny, doesn't it? Like the, the but she's only like seven, well, right? I, no, I she was, was seven. Say, when she took it. I was also about to say that 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 dude is is totally Dario. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. his, and his name is like all close to Cal Drogo. Too. Yeah, kinda, yeah. But, but that guy got like a ton of Dario vibes off that guy. Like, well, she was seven when she was taken, but isn't she like sure, twelve yeah. or thirteen now? Yeah, yeah, yeah she's because yeah. she said that she was uh, six months into having her period or whatever. So not the same period, but yeah. She had had her first period six months ago. Sorry. Yeah, I liked hearing about some of the other apostles. I think we get our first appearance of a, a Findi. So t- I don't know how to pronounce it. Turkanir, a Findi mind mute. Hmm. And that's kind of big because the Findi were like a big e- enemy of the of the human civilization. Yeah, and I think centuries that- ago they f- they fought them in the in the double war. Um, and yeah, just the description, like the vertical mouth and the, the skin and the. I think it describes the the limbs as going at all the wrong angles and this horrible screaming sound, quite unnerving. Yeah, it didn't Plus quite feel that. that yeah, like a, a, a like a psychic torturer. That didn't help either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It didn't quite feel like the apostles did enough in the story to really merit their inclusion. They just kind of disappeared after they were introduced for the most part. They're mentioned briefly at other parts. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I think um, – I mean they were interesting. And the, the concept of this place being so like competitive and honestly Game of Thronesy, y as far as like the intrigue and trying to take control, and, like everyone kind of being in it for themselves really was mm-hmm. cool. But I didn't feel like there was much actual action on that point. Yeah, so Sarah mentions a few times like she's always ready to be betrayed by them. They're always after her spot. And in a sense, it seems like she keeps them around as a way to keep herself sharp, um, as well as they serve various functions for her, whether it's reading different people telepathically or torturing them or providing research about them, all that kind of thing. Yeah, we get the whole story about Claronymus. I said it <laughs> from one of well them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was cool to hear. Yeah, I always thought he had a pretty interesting backstory. That whole that whole time period is well done. Like it's, 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 it's I like hearing about it. Mm, yeah, and that's one of the more comprehensive descriptions of the interregnum that we get in any of the stories. I liked how um, that description is very like uh, formal and bibliographic. But then towards the end of the story, when Cyrene inhabitant inhabits Cloronus's body, her visions of her are much more like intimate and personal. Like she recalls, you know, the the words that his uh his linguist said to him as he was dying, Tommy Chung, who I think is mentioned in, in Seven Times Never King Kill Man. Or he remembers like the last time he made love to a woman, like these very intimate memories that aren't necessarily written in a history book, but they're they're like the most important things to to Chloronymus. Yeah, and it mentions the Steel Angels as well and their whole philosophy about strength being virtue, weakness is sin. And but they're like she, she kind of judges herself by that, but though she's not, she wasn't born of them. But 
It was interesting learning more about Steel Angels as well. I, I was kind of surprised that they merited a, to, to be included, like that they had enough impact culturally to be remembered. Mm. But maybe they, they ended up really expanding well, after we saw them. Well, they did. They did or, during the war, right? Yeah, I think they control several planets. Okay. Something like that. Like they have somewhat of an empire. So who's this? So the eighth man, the ghost who, who was supposed to be here, was was actually some other Avalon person that, that decided to, he wanted to put his memories into here and then he got overwhelmed. That's essentially what it is. Yeah, it's basically like just some archivist or something. Yeah, initially, I think when I first read this, like I thought that was maybe like the the original biological Chloronymus and then it turns out, no, he was actually dead and it's just some other archivist. One thing I was going to mention is um, comparing it to A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, like the ability to body swap is sort of similar to the abilities of the wargs and the skin changes and even the faceless men mm-hmm. um, in yeah, that story. Yeah. So like like Cyrene and Chloronymus, the character of Arya Stark sort of experiences the sensations and memories of those whose faces she steals. Also Bran Stark remarks that the longer he walks into his direwolf summer's skin, the harder it is to recall that he is a boy and return to his human body. So again, just that merging of consciousness and you sort of forget who you are. Yeah, you take I really... on the memories of the body. Like the bodies are stored in the, the the memories are stored in the body. They're part of the physical world in a weird way. Yeah, it, it evoked for me the House of Black and White really strongly. Of course, the idea of taking someone else's face and, and becoming them in a way. And I think, too, the House of the Undying, just this idea of, like, extending life in a very perverse way, um, like, I, that, that came across to me as well. So you can definitely see some of these concepts here being uh, uh, reinterpreted in that. Well, there's also, also the, the Varimir uh, Six Skins, uh, which is fresh on my mind because we actually just recorded the, for a podcast of Ice and Fire, the the prologues of the, of the Feast for Crows, Dance of Dragons. And in Dance of Dragons, mm-hmm. he specifically talks about second life and how you can go in the animal or take over somebody. And that's it, though. You can't keep going on, apparently, unless I guess the, that other person maybe had uh, the same uh, skin-changing skills. But, oh, if you worked into a warg? Yeah, yeah maybe you'd yeah. be able to do that, but I don't know. Otherwise, you can't. You're stuck there. Yeah, And it's, it's interesting because the wildlings describe skin changes as like abominations. Mm. Um, they see them as like stealing other people's souls and losing their own souls. And you almost get a sense of why they why they fear them so or why why they are so revolted by them because you see Cyrene just kind of losing who she is and and uh, subjugating the minds of others. It's, it's quite creepy. She's oh, quite yeah, a, she... a, a twisted character. Yes, quite. <laughs> For sure. She was not the best person. Um, absolutely. And I don't think we we're meant to really be rooting for her. Yeah. Couple other random Song of Ice and Fire references, of course. The, just the idea of obsidian, and that that comes up again and again. Uh, this is the what this tower is constructed from, and that's kind of hmm. opposed to the way that um, Chloronymus would have constructed it with more natural stuff, as opposed to this kind of stark piece of like just like more metallic, more plastic, as it's described in all these things. Um, also, useless nipples gets mentioned. I just wanted to shout that out. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That is mentioned. That. It's a little weird, like that the Chloronima or that you know whatever the the per the <laughs> the set of memories formerly embodying Chloronimus at the beginning of the story. Uh, it's weird, kind of weird that he stays, right? That he's like, oh yeah, I'll just take care of this artifact and be a a body walker. Like mm-hmm. after he was like so judgmental about it, I wonder if that's saying something too. That maybe. Uh, when you're all just a crystal matrix, uh, you're, you can see things clearly and make objective judgments. But then as soon as you're like just a, 
an organic person, you're uh, you rationalize everything. <laughs> it depends how he's gonna get... how is he gonna run it? Is he gonna run it the same way or is he gonna make it like you can voluntarily you just, I guess you, that's fair. Sure. To do that. Still a little bit, you know, I don't know, a little bit blood sporty, uh, regardless. But yeah. Yeah. I mean he yeah, I think that's true. He might run it in a completely different way. And we also see him like reorganizing the, the living quarters and sort of merging it into the forest. Yeah, but it's like he didn't kick out the apostles, right? I mean, like she was mm. she was warning him against the apostles. I don't know. Like, I mean, my I mean, obviously we don't know. But um, the impression I had was definitely just like, well, I mean, he's going to build a tree fort or whatever. But (laughs) (laughs) what's the role of the apostles, really? Are they they just there so they could keep prolonging their lives and keep switching eventually? Why why are they still living? It's unclear how they're like how they're being paid or in or what sort of form, you know, like one of them uh, is like her steward or whatever was mentioned. Right. Like he traded 10 years of service for for part of his fee or whatever. Mm. But yeah, like the apostles, I I don't know, like because she said they all want something, and then when they get it, they leave, except for Dario, who got it and then keeps coming back or whatever. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, they they want something, but I'm not quite clear on what, and I'm also not quite clear on why. I guess I don't know, like if you murder the the master of the of the artifact, do you just like get to does does it just become up for grabs and anybody can go in there and get it, or do you have to get seven people and Whoever wins gets it. I don't know. Mm, I guess maybe the more people you have, the better chance you have. Like the, all the different apostles have a different skill that can be combined to face any enemy, maybe. For sure. No, I mean, I think it's super valuable for for anybody who's operating the um, operating the artifact that she was, right? I mean, I think she had a very good, um, she had a very good system set up, right? But, um, I, you know, if you, if you were thinking of operating it more gentle, more kindly or more fairly, then I'm not mm. sure that the apostles, <laughs> the apostles are uh, are an advantage that I don't know seem a little. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I assume it's just that was Cyrene's way of operating it. Like the apostles aren't endemic to the to the artifact. Um, right. I, I was just function any way you want. Sure. Yeah. I was just saying that, like, when she was warning him, like, or you know, her at that point, whatever. Um, when he, when the ex Claronimus was being warned at the end, she was saying like, and you can't trust these apostles. One of them's going to slit your throat. And he wasn't yeah. like, yeah, I'm getting rid of these apostles. What are you crazy? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I, I don't, we don't know, but sort of the, uh, the impression I was left with anyway, was that he was going to keep running it, you know? What's this, yeah. uh, link you sent, Michael? Is that a, it's a... Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I just, I was, I was... <laughs> Honestly, I was just Googling it so that I could look at the word again so that I could be able to pronounce it. Um, and uh, and that popped up, I guess, uh, Chloronymus in Greek. I guess it's a Greek word hmm. that means um, one who receives by lot an heir. Um, and so it's interesting, right, that his memories are sort of something that, that uh, different people receive as, hmm. a, as an inheritance. And I, I don't know for sure. I don't know if you know George meant that or or not. But he does. I mean, Claronimus essentially works that way, right? I mean, his his memories are transferred from person to person, and then they are incorporated by the. It, it's know. interesting because Claronimus's role in history is, in a way, a collector of memories. Like he set out into the universe. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. To to sort of rediscover or or archive all of the knowledge that had been lost because of the interregnum, because of the war, and it was the the, the uh, center of human knowledge was all this collected human memory that could be protected. So in a way, in a way, it's like what is humanity but this collection of knowledge? 
when he put Avalon on the map, and it makes, it makes me wonder about what Avalon would have been. I'm assuming it would have been right near the end of the time period where there is no federal empire anymore, but maybe Avalon's trying to take an even more active role or trying to do something to unify territory, maybe. Yeah, I, I certainly think Avalon's like a... I don't know if it's replaced the federal empire, but it seems to have a, a strong um, system in its part of the world, in its part of the galaxy. Like mm. it's sort of the power there. So the powers seem to be like like Old Earth, I guess, or New Home. They have their power. Then there's Avalon, then there's Prometheus, Jameson's world. They seem to be the big human worlds that govern certain parts of the galaxy. Old Earth, it seems isolationist. Like they're not letting anyone go there or something. Yeah, that was interesting. Like, but, like what, did he say, I can't remember if they, he used the word walls or yes. a different, yeah, but that, that's an interesting uh, yeah, no, uh, note. It's really it's really unique from the way that Old Earth is conceived in this kind of like far future science fiction where normally it's just a, a wasteland, but here it seems <laughs> to be actually a utopia. Well, well, I don't, I don't know what it is really. It could, it yeah, could be a wasteland. It, it, it's, yeah. yeah, it's a big question mark. Could I mean, we get a character. We get a character in the next story who says he went there, but he doesn't really have much to say about it. He just yes. kind of was curious what the <laughs> home world was. But it sounds like it, you know, wasn't right. that. Presumably, it seems just normal. Then it wasn't a wasteland or, or particularly memorable. Sure, he would have mentioned it. I guess that's a good. Yeah, I think. Thing. Go ahead. A good end to get to the next story. <laughs> Yeah, I think the combination of description of uh, like the shining walls and the idea that you could actually live forever there kind of evoked that utopian feeling for me. But that yes. could totally be false. Mm. Yeah. It seems mythical. Like it seems not unbelievable that they could do that. Although on the other hand, if they could do that, maybe that's the reason why they would shut their doors. They're like, enough of this. We're just gonna the empire is falling apart. We're just gonna have our own planet. Yeah, they weren't, it they, like they they weren't particularly got, good they during the scared. empire. During the empire, it was, the federal empire was pretty brutal, right? That was the whole point of the empire. Like it was not that good. You go back to the hero and some of the other things. Like they were suppressing their own people, and they they may have instigated uh, the war. Yeah, I mean, it was basically Earth's fault that the that the uh, the collapse happened because they got antsy about cobalt i think it was stephen cobalt north star yeah i thought he was amassing too much power and ordered him to return to earth or ordered him you know ordered him to step down and they basically rebelled and, and attacked um i can't remember which planet wellington, it? I think. But wellington yeah they bombed wellington and the whole thing kicked off um and i think i think it's pretty crazy but siren i think mentioned like it took 10 years basically for the whole empire to collapse mm. like they they fought the findi and the harangans for a thousand years they won and then in 10 years their whole thing their whole setup just collapsed well the findi so that, i don't know if it's mentioned in the next story like the findi they basically made a deal in the end like they they made peace whereas the harangans they just they bombed like while they were falling apart they also bombed them <laughs> at the same time yeah 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 they conquered them um, one last thing I thought was interesting was we sort of mentioned Cyrene is fairly reprehensible point of view character. And I think that is a sign of maybe Martin's maturation that this is most of his short stories have like fairly normal characters or somewhat sympathetic characters. Whereas this is, he started starting to get more into like POVs who are quite reprehensible and, um, you know, morally, <laughs> morally icky. What, one other one that jumps to mind is, um, Sand Kings, like the mm. the character there, is pretty horrible as well. But um, Siren, Siren's another good one. Sand Kings, you can see the, I mean, the horror genre part of it, right? It makes it easier to have that. I guess you could, oh, I suppose you could have a sympathetic character that gets thrust into a horror situation. That's half of horror. But he went through mm, yeah. <laughs> There's a ton of horror in this one yeah. too. <laughs> I mean, the the mind game. Right. There was some, there was some images in there. Yeah. Well, let's purge them by going on to the Stone City then, right? That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect.
sort of. <laughs> Re- replace them with well, new horror. One hell with another hell. Stone City is bureaucratic hell. Uh, okay, so The Stone City is our second story, um, and it's a science fiction novelette by Martin, first published in New Voices in Science Fiction, Six Stories by Campbell Award nominees in 1977. Uh, it is set beyond Demouche space on the planet of Greyrest during the post-interregnum period. And it's about a man whose ship and crew have been stranded on an alien planet for months and whose only chance of escape is to explore an ancient underground city. In the introductory notes for Dream Songs, Martin describes the stone city as, quote, subversive as it mixes in elements of Lovecraft and Kafka and plants the suggestion that, quote, When we go far enough from home, rationality, causality, and the physical laws of the universe itself begin to break down. So what did you think of the Stone City? Um, How many, maybe jewel claws? How many jewel claws would you give it? I'd give it uh, three out of five. Um, Yeah, I'd give it three out of five. I enjoyed it less compared to the two stories. I can see the difference between when he released this and he released that later. But there were some good elements in there, and, and I found... Again, some more uh, interesting backstory, but uh, it was it was a three out of five for me. Yeah, I'd say maybe three point five out of five. Um, it was obviously, uh, you know, it was it was harder. To, I mean, it was de- de- more. I don't know. Maybe it's not. I guess, yeah, it was more depressing. I mean, the other story may have been worse people, but it was um, it was more. De- it was a depressing read, um, and so that always that always hurts ratings for me. Um, I enjoyed the ending more than I like. I remembered it vaguely, you know, from when I've read them before. Um, but I actually had, I remember liking the ending for uh, Glass Flower more and the ending for Stone City uh, less. And I was pleasantly surprised by the ending this time. So anyway, 3.5 out of 5 for me. Yeah, I'll give it the same. I'll give 3.5 out of 5. I think, like you say, Michael, like for me, the most important thing with these stories is that it sticks the landing, that it, the ending feels strong and feels like it speaks to what was being built up throughout the piece. So, yeah, I thought the ending was really good, too. So that made it work for me. And I think I enjoyed and understood Holt just enough as a character to really like feel the journey in a good way. So, yeah, that was enough for me to to enjoy it, not love it, but enjoy it. Um, I was blown away by the story. I think it may be one of my favorite things Martin's writ- written. Um I had actually read it years ago, and the first time it just completely washed over me. I had no idea what was going on or who who all these weird creatures were. The only thing I remember about it was the annoying foxmen. Um, But for some (laughs) reason, it it really just clicked with me. I think the story is incredibly haunting in its depiction of, you know, like the unknowability of reality, the frighteningness of of, uh, space and time in its vastness. I think you get this incredible sense of emptiness of the universe and, and the insignificance of humanity. Again, all very depressing. Uh, the purgatorial world of Grey Rest, I found tragic and absurd. And I found myself really sympathizing with Holt. You know, he's a very restless character. He's got a lot of regret and he's just got this unfulfillable longing. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'll give it uh, I'll give it five out of five, Jewel Claws. Wow, Duncan, I guess you, you got sucked into that underground uh web absolutely yeah. you're in there yeah <laughs> i do think he's still in there right <laughs> yeah i do yeah. think for sure this story benefits from multiple reads like to really appreciate it so that that makes a ton of sense that you did feel that after reading it a second time i think just the the language which just really got to me 
And yeah, the idea of the stone city, it's just kind of surrealness was just really effective. I thought just getting lost in that space, that impossible space, it was really good. And it just wove so well into the ideas of the story. Just this character who's just always trying to explore further and further and further and just can never find what he's looking for. Well, I, I, well, I, I might have a different view on the ending, actually. But overall, I do see that the theme of it's almost almost like you humans with your arrogance, you thought you could understand everything. But you, you're going here. This is something that breaks your rules. And same thing with the new types of travel, too. They think, oh, we can try this new type of travel. And then it's hellish. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't really work very well. And it may actually be making like it makes you go crazy kind of right. At least it's, it seems to be having negative effects on the the Fox guys. And I think that sense of going crazy is really well communicated because mm. so much of the story just seems absurd. Like he's trying to deal with the Foxman and they just, they sometimes know who he is. They sometimes don't. The idea of the Foxman just seems out of a cartoon. Yeah. Um, they keep asking him the same questions over and over <laughs> again. Just so just this like nightmarish, again, like Martin mentions Kafka and it is like this, this nightmarish bureaucracy that, that never resolves itself. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just getting stuck in this place, this purgatory, nothing seems quite real. The idea of technology making you go insane, going too far away from home, nothing seems real anymore. I thought that would just all work so well. And and just from the narrator's point of view, just that subjective experience, so many, especially once you get into the Stone City, you just see so many images. And it's like, it seems like you're supposed to, it's asking you a question or it's giving you a clue that you could possibly figure out. Like the fact that the um, there's this one character that keeps popping up is the, um, oh, what was his name? He's like the landlord. This alien landlord keeps appearing in the Stone City. Oh, and yes. I'm like, am I supposed to know who he is? Is this a, is this <laughs> character, does he mean something? But it never resolves it. So it's just this mystery after mystery. And you keep trying to solve a mystery and it just opens up more mystery. So that sense of just going insane, I think, is really well uh, described and and experienced in the and I think just to support that point the non-linearity of the story really helps to, to develop that feeling we're constantly like jumping into flashbacks of different details establishing of how Holt got here and how things got to where they are at this point like I felt mm-hmm. like that too helps create this feeling of confusion and uncertainty and ultimately insanity like you described and I think that pairs well actually with the previous story that idea of the nature of memory is not linear it's not clear it's not um logical in a way it can be just this mishmash of different impressions some memories are stronger than others some memories connect some memories are completely random and um, i guess the stone city in a way is just this collection of illogical memories from all over the universe it's like it's this a blotting paper that all the all this experiences all, all these different species that have crossed this one planet it's just kind of collected in this weird unknowable place yeah, so that's is that what is happening at the end? Like he he's tapping into that, so he actually is experiencing that. It's not a delusion luring him there necessarily, but he he's actually is getting to see all these worlds through. Like, no, well, not like uh, literally traveling. No, to he's the not actually thing. going there, but he's seeing he's seeing yeah. images. Like he's he's experiencing like the memories of these worlds or something. To for like, I mean, yeah. Sorry, I mean, go ahead. I don't know. I'm not it's, sure. It says webs of space time. That's what's interesting. I, I mean, I think the best yeah. comparison is A Song of Ice and Fire, The House of the Undying. Danny just walking through this yeah. this temple, looking through doors and just seeing visions of things. So I don't think it's not physically traveling there or even you could ask the question, what does it even mean to physically travel somewhere? Sure. But he's just seeing visions of things, basically. 
Yeah, and I think there's this this like the description of what this story could mean. Some of the stuff I've read, essentially saying that this is like a a, a ongoing you know metaphor for the concept of a uh, people who find peace and we talked about this a little bit back in um the last cast for this but this idea of like finding peace in unreality in 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 our case like pieces of fiction and like the comfort that you can have in like delving into this non-existent thing but that still feels real to you kind of thing that seems to be what's coming across with the, what holt ends up doing here at the end yeah i think there's a strong connection to a few of his other stories like bitter blooms characters who are stuck in these situations and find escape in um, one, yeah. in stories or books or or whatever it is fantasy worlds um and in a way that's what holt seems to be doing is trying to seek out fantasy like he's just this kid looking up at the stars dreaming about all these places and and trying to search for adventure but he's never quite find it and he's always off on yeah. another adventure but i think so, it's there seems to be like a, a clear like economic uh, commentary going on as well like these characters who are essentially stuck in this ghetto or this slum and some of them turn to drugs some of them turn to crime some to prostitution some commit suicide so they're all looking for this escape and then holt's holt's escape is basically the stone city yeah so along that line martin did say this story is the closest to quote capturing the yearnings of that boy stretched out in the summer grass beside the kill van cole staring up at orion like you were describing there duncan so i think yeah you can think of this story very much as kind of a as the closest thing to like seeing the way that martin views fantasy and views the ability to stare up into the sky and imagine worlds and that appeal and that's what i liked a lot like i think for all the characters we've read i I had such a clarity of knowing what holt was about he is this person who just wants to go on journeys Mm -hmm. wants to experience the world but in the actual literal physical way he does it, it's clearly corrupted and goes horribly wrong. <laughs> so mm. it's actually safer to do that in this, in this, in the end, it feels in this um, fantastic way. It's not quite real. Yeah. It's, it's very cautionary. I, I, I guess a bit like bitter blooms, like this isn't a, this can you know lead you down a bad, bad path, just constant escape. But I think we've talked a bit about like the biographical elements of some of these stories. The fact that Martin as a child, lived in quite a, a working class or poor neighborhood and would look at the ships passing by and make up stories for them. So it's a bit, it's sort of analogous to what uh, Holt does sure, as yeah. a child looking up yeah. at the stars. Well, he physically wants to leave and continue his journey. He's prevented by this uh, insane bureaucracy and, and jokes and all of that. And so he's forced into this situation. Yes, indeed. And he's obviously, it affects him to a degree that he strangles and kills one of the, the uh, Fox people. So he's uh, he has his moment of madness, absolutely, yeah. that leads him to this point. So it's not as though this is a happy ending, I don't think. I, think I, 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 didn't, I don't feel that way about it at all. I think it's a I think it's a very nice ending for Holt. For Holt, he's doing what he yeah, wants. Yeah, for Holt. He's, he's yeah, he's, and he's, I mean also, I mean the ending at the end. I mean again, like I don't know, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what you guys are saying is actually happening in terms of the space time stuff, but the. The end certainly seems to imply or that, uh, you know, that he's survived for, for hundreds or thousands of years down there, right? He's immortal. He's a, he's yeah. What capacity, he, right? He, like, he did what Serene yeah. wanted. He's, 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 it looks like it's some kind of time dilation thing. So he's just here yeah, right. and just doing this while the rest of the universe is passing, right? Yeah. The ending's very intense. Like he mentions not a, a, a ship hasn't landed on its planet in a millennium. Right. So he's yeah. been down there for centuries, for thousands of years. 
Um, and he's describing all of these different species and their final fates. Like he mm. describes one species as dying out, another one is enslaved, the foxmen, the Dinlay basically go insane and devour each other. Um, so it's very intense and, and um, apocalyptic in a way. I guess he, I, I read it as pretty melancholy, like it described the final line is his hold is going between the stars. I didn't read that literally. I, I read that as like he's just in this fugue state. He's just living in pure fantasy and just looking up at the stars and his mind is just kind of contained in this stone city wandering like a ghost. So, but I mean, is he, I guess, um, in your mind, is, is, is he making this stuff up? No. Or is he no, seeing no. It? He's seeing it. I think if he's, he's seeing, seeing it, it for real, then yes. I mean, like, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't, I, well, maybe I, mean, I, I guess less, maybe I put less uh, value on, on, on physically visiting, but I'm, I'm not sure, you know, what the, what the necessary, like, I mean, he wants to experience these, these worlds and these cultures and he's doing that. And I mean, yeah. like, I'm, I, yeah. I'm happy for him. Like, I think that that, I think that he's, well, his, his goal was, I mean, he kind of inherited from Cain. Or was it Old Kane? Was the guy's name? He wanted yeah, to yeah. see all this stuff, and then he kind of realized there's no way I can do this in this finite life the time. I can like there's no way I can get to see all these places, and now that's what he's doing. Yeah, yeah I mean, I th- the tone the tone of the ending I didn't think was like bad. It wasn't like a yeah. twist ending where all all of a sudden you realize oh he's in this horrible situation or he's trapped. I don't see him as being trapped. I just think it's this kind of the tone of it's just very like mysterious and romantic and melancholy like. I don't like maybe yeah he might be happy or I don't know it's more just the tone of it just very it's hard to describe like one like it's it's very poetic and one passage is like you know humanity never reaches the core or something like that um to me it just evokes Mm. like vastness and the sublime just this awesome unknowable experience so it wasn't necessarily bad just unknowable yeah it's complicated right it's complicated to rule on what on how you interpret like whether or not this result in your life is a is an ideal result right so we talked about this in the way of cross and dragon right this idea of like if if the importance of life is reducible to the idea of being happy then maybe this is enough because at the end he is happy like in this fantasy land he's living in he's happy with that and that's good enough for him but then there's like the idea is is it good to like dwell into the dream and live in the dream forever and just like decay and exist in that and not actually live your life mm. is that is that the correct ending or like the right way to live. So yeah, it's, it's a complicated thing, but I think, I think uh, for me, like I can't rule definitively either way, if it's like a happy ending or a sad, well, one. when he, when it's... he pops out, he'll be the same age essentially. And then he'll just have to be in another later. <laughs> Maybe. <universe. laughs> yeah. I don't think he's ever popping out. <laughs> it's funny. How he says, I'll just a little bit, in a little bit, I'll go back. He says, and then he's just walking star to star. But I, I do think it makes a difference in, in what, what Holt wanted to do. If he's actually seeing, those worlds or this is just a fantasy like it's a simulated thing where it's not it's just making up what those worlds could be i think he really wanted to see what those worlds were like and if this machine is showing him like a giant view screen what those worlds were like i think he wanted to do that if it's just making up what they could be like he wouldn't like that yeah but i think the fact that i mean that there obviously is some time weirdness happening Mm. Uh, based on the line at the end, uh, I mean, I guess just because there's time weirdness doesn't mean there has to be space weirdness. But uh, you know, space it does time, space time. They're yeah, linked together, right, right, exactly, right. Yeah. Here's a, a line that it reminded we were talking about this specifically that he, he wouldn't be able to do it in, in one life, but through this he can. Well, George has a quote that himself. I was searching for George. A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. Said Jojen, the man yeah. who never reads lives only one. So he's living the thousand lives. He's mm-hmm. like a reader now. 
and and again like duncan said it connects to bitter blooms too like this idea of like just like the beauty of just living in all these worlds and being able to experience things you never would have been able to otherwise but ultimately it's not real so it is that it's that interesting question if like that is if that is correct and that is good but it's not something i think that you can say definitively and the other danger is you can almost never be content with your actual life if you are living in these vastly more fantastical worlds mm. if you're if you're looking at Aval, if if you know uh, Sean in Bitterblooms knows about Avalon. How can she ever go home and live a content life knowing how fantastical all these other worlds are? And if if someone like Holt is always gazing up at the stars and imagining all the amazing things that could be out there, how can he ever be happy on you know his little snow world? I'm going to pull out a really deep esoteric literary pull here, which is a quote from Harry Potter. Oh, <laughs> fancy. Which is uh, the quote in the first the first book of those where uh, um, Dumbledore says it does not do well to dr- to dwell on dreams and forget to live. So that is the other side of it, right? And that's in mm-hmm. reference to Harry staring into the mirror of Erised. Um But yeah, like the, it's complicated, right? I think there's merit to both philosophical ideas, but I don't think you can say like one is is true and and right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's somewhat more complicated in this. Just because, I mean, again, if the if he is actually uh, being able to to view and experience other worlds. I think it sort of it moves the moves the needle a few notches or, or from, uh, you know, something like the Miravera said, where, you know, it's just a it's a fantasy and, you know, one that is designed to prevent you from eating or anything else. Right. So mm. fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it does seem to make him happy going to these other worlds. But just there's a scene in the with the wisdom pool where he's asking and what's beyond that and what's beyond that and what's beyond that just gives you this impression that it like he'll never the journey. I don't know. The journey just seems to be never ending. Like he, he is looking for something, but he'll never find it. He can't find because there'll always be something beyond. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's an elusive sense of wonder, I think. Yeah, for me, like I, I just and this is metatextual in a way. Like I, I approach it thinking about the way that like Martin constructs these stories, and I just can't imagine that he's viewing this as like, oh yeah, things are going perfect for Holt <laughs> at the end here, especially <laughs> after going, okay. especially after going through the the Stone City, which is so stark and so horrifying in its yeah. own way. So yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like, oh yeah, this is the the best place in the world. This is Disneyland, and you're living in a world of fantasy and love. There there are some quite scary images in the Stone City. Mm. Um, he sees a, a tower of the Harangans, which is we sort of mentioned. That's the first time we've seen a Findi in um, the Glass Flower. This is seems to be the closest we get to a Harangan to see one of their fortresses in any of the Thousand World stories. Mm. And uh, he sees the Foxman. I love that description of the foxmen, like their their bodies kind of sort of becoming frantic and not quite matching up, which I assume is meant to be describing them going through using their jump guns and going into different time-space continuums and their body never quite lines up each time and it keeps getting further and further or, or something and they become more frantic and chaotic and whatnot. But there's one moment in it where he sees a foxman that looks scared and afraid and that really like touched me in a way like that because it reminded me like oh as antagonistic as the foxmen are in the story or the Dan Lai are in the story. Um, you kind of reminds me, oh, what if they actually were quite a nice, normal people at one point that have basically, this is at the end of this, you know, horrible fusion of technology that's basically driven them insane. And there are probably plenty of Foxmen who were quite scared by what was happening to their, to their fellow people. 
Hmm. That, that, I mean, that is implied. I mean, you, you think even their cruelty to Holt is maybe because their personalities are getting worse because of this, or they, they just inherently had that? I think so. I think also, like, this planet just seems to do things to people. Hmm. Like, it's just a, something irrational about the planet. Um, and I like the descriptions of all the people who have, were here before that. There was a previous civilization that died off that went into the Stone City and couldn't figure it out and went insane. Um, and the fact that the Foxmen's offices are all built, um, wrong, like they're built for a much bigger people because the Foxmen have taken it over from a previous, um, mm. civilization, just all those little touches that nothing quite fits. Nothing's quite right. Nothing quite works properly. Nothing quite progresses. Like, it seems like the, the paperwork's going through on the, on getting a birth. And then suddenly there's another, you know, hitch that he has to resolve. So all that just seems to be soaked into this world. It just doesn't work. It's just this purgatorial existence. So earlier on in the the story, the whole thing with Cain I found interesting because, first of all, he lived 200 years. So that gives a little mm. bit like idea on how people could, long people can live and in comparison to Bitter Blooms too, figuring out who she could have been there. And, and just also just the whole, his backstory, he was at the Festival of the Fringe, which so, so that's going back to the Dying of the Light time period. And this is after that. Uh, it shows it's later on the timeline and just more information on Haranga, for example, like that they're, they really are defeated, at least from his point of view. Mm. And Kane seems to be a sort of a father figure mm. to Holtz. He looks up to him a lot and is inspired by him to keep adventuring. And and he is sort of inspired by all the places that Holt is, uh, that Kane has visited. Um, I think that mention of the Festival of the Fringe is quite interesting because that's one of the few sort of clear time um, approximations that we mm. get in the Thousand Stories, because often it's very vague about when they occur. There's a few stories we know take place during the war. Some take place during an interregnum, interregnum at least for some planets. Um, but Dying of the Light actually has firm dates. I think Dying of the Light takes place like 500, or sorry, maybe 600 years after the interregnum. And then we get another clear date, which is Cain attended the Festival of the Fringe from Dying of the Light um, as a as a young boy. And he, if he's 200 years or 220 years old, then the Stone City has to take place around 800 years after the Interregnum. Um, and I believe in The Glass Flower, Chloronymus mentions that his last, or the memory of Chloronymus, sorry, mentions that his last time he made love to a woman was 800 years ago, or she was she's been dead 800 years. Um, so both these stories seem to take place 800 years after the Interregnum, which would be, yeah, it seems to be further further along the timeline than some of the other stories. As far as A Song of Ice and Fire connections and talking about Cain, the immediate this isn't, isn't a song of ice and fire, but the immediate mental connection I made was to actually Dunk and Egg and uh, Dunk and Sir Arlen, that relationship mm. that they have um, as like a mentor who picks them up and takes them on these adventures. Like I just that was the immediate thing that popped into my head when I heard that described. Um, another connection I would say would be the the Demush wisdom pools. Um, I think they're very similar to the concept of the old gods and the weirwood trees. Mm, yeah. So in, in both stories. You have like this telepathic elder sort of commits his mind to the to the natural environment, and then he, his role seems to be like to preserve and dispense knowledge to to worthy pilgrims. Um, and uh, it also the, the wisdom pools and the weirwoods both seem to allow elders to see and communicate far distances um, in the present or in even the past and the future. They seem to have that have that knowledge base. There's definitely something that he uses, and we got this with the pyramids. Um, back in uh, in one of the last ones we did, but yeah, there's something about like artifacts that have this like power associated with them that exist in places in the world. I think that that's very much a motif that he comes back to in these stories. 
Um, another fun fact is that uh, Martin mentions that originally his Thousand World stories, he was going to put them under the umbrella of the Man Realm. Mm. And this is the first time he uses the term Man Realm. Um, and within this story, it refers to the region of space occupied by all Earth, old Earth and dominated by humanity. So most of the Thousand World stories take place in the Man Realm, the human, human space. Um, but also he adds that he wanted to use that to refer to the broader setting. Um, in which his, you know, future history stories take place. Um, but later he he replaced it with the term Thousand Worlds, which he, quote, thought had a nicer ring to it and oh, yeah. give him plenty, plenty of room <laughs> to add, argue with add. that. <laughs> Good move there, George. Good pick. Well, does he talk he like the, 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 there may actually be 2,000 or whatever, like the, the, that estimation is made, is just, it, but the name itself is just a nice one, Thousand Worlds, right? Yeah, just and it's ambiguous I, enough that he can add new worlds as he as he wants. Yeah. Them. I'd go so far as to say we wouldn't be doing these podcasts if it was called the Man Realm setting. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's we, we, we wouldn't that's a we'd different... be linking them together in this in this way into one. We'd just be like, oh, another short story on to the next. Yeah, that's a different area of the library. <laughs> I was gonna say it might get different views from other. <laughs> uh... You have you'd have an odd name to match the odd artwork that they had. With the with the lips for the song for Lionel, a lot of his works had a pretty odd art artwork. I do appreciate these simple titles of these stories, as opposed to uh, "and seven times never kill man!" exclamation <laughs> point. I just like the simple titles, and I think they they are very evocative for these two stories. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I think that's. Do we have anything final comments, or I think we've covered it. No, I think that's everything. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. It's it's good to record with you again and kind of finish this trilogy of stories that Duncan wanted to get back into. What we're going to do moving forward, if you want to, if you're up for continuing, is is try to wrap up the last few short stories in the Thousand Worlds, uh, other than Havlin Tough, because that's its own thing. So we can do that separately. So we can get that done and kind of finish the reread to that point, basically. Yeah, sounds great. I'm in. Yep, I'm cool. definitely in. Absolutely. After well, that, cool. after you finish that, I mean, there's still we we did do Dying the Light as a novel, but he has other novels uh, like Fever Dream and that stuff. That just takes more commitment to get everybody on board and read it. Got to do Armageddon Rag. I keep hammering oh, it. Armageddon, Armageddon Rag. Rag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we'll go straight to Armageddon Rag then. Cause <laughs> the, the book that the book that almost destroyed his career. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm curious to know why. Although if you look not- at the, the timelines, he did. He was still doing short stories after that. He just, he just couldn't get a novel, I think, was the problem, right? He couldn't get yeah. a sustained income. No one would buy – would purchase a manuscript from him for a novel. Yeah, now it's the other way around. They're, they're trying to get anything he ever did. This <laughs> They want to uh, adapt, which was, which I don't have a problem with, to be honest. I, it would be fun to see some of these things adapted. It's funny because he actually wrote like a quarter of a new novel. His fourth novel was going to be um, – this novel called Black and White and oh, Red All Over. Yes, I remember the It's description. set in like late 19th century New York and it's about Jack the Ripper and these newspaper reporters who were following Jack the Ripper supposedly coming to New York City and wreaking havoc. Um, and it's actually available. Like the, the quarter that he did write is available in a collection called um, Quartet, which I oh, read. Yes. And it's really good. But it, as soon as you start to get into it, it's, it abruptly ends. It's really frustrating. <laughs> but he was writing that to be like his song novel. <laughs> yeah, Damn. very very similar experience. Yeah. Uh, but it's like Damn. it's only like a hundred pages. But he was writing that to be his fourth novel, but just no one would purchase it, purchase the idea because of uh, Armageddon Rag. So he eventually just abandoned did it. Did Quartet also have a, a skin trade in it? Like that's one place. It did. Yeah. Oh, yes, okay. It was it was yeah. a skin trade. Um, 
Uh, yes, black, black and white and red all over the a Song of Ice and Fire Danny chapters, mm. so the uh, the Blood of the Dragon, and there was one more which was it wasn't a short story, but it was a script for a TV show. It was called like oh, Starport or something. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So it was like the four sort of crossroads of his uh, of his. This um, is pretty. This, this is something like the year two thousand or something like that. This is an old publication. I remember that. Yeah, it was a bit of everything. It's a bit of everything. I love learning from you, Martin scholars. All this history. <laughs> well, that, that was really, really a friend of mine who had read that as well. I mean, his take of you way back then was that the series is not going to finish because George just moves on to something else, which, yeah. is, which I'm fine with if he moves on to something else. Like, if you want, <laughs> he always in the past. He okay, do skin trade. Wow, that could be a whole universe in itself. No, move on to something else. Yeah. Do fever dream. Yeah, move yeah, on yeah. To something else like. So. You really messed up making one of the most popular fantasy series of all time, and now he can't do what he wants. <laughs> the worst. Amateur. Yeah. I mean, even just like selling it to HBO, probably. I mean, like obviously it was popular before, but you know, I, I think you could get out from under it maybe if it weren't for the HBO stuff. Mm. Yeah, HBO certainly. HBO essentially just just it's almost like it 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 pushed what this books would be twenty years later. It just accelerated the fandom mm-hmm. to what it would have been initially, yeah. right? But. And so, yeah. Although if you think about it, like, I mean, have you noticed? Like, I mean, here we are. A, a lot of people are moving. We always on. get here, <laughs> right <laughs> on time. I was just saying that, all, like, a lot of the people that came in via the show, I think they've moved on to other stuff, right? So, could there be a, a a thing where like it just goes back to just core book people, and the rest kind of move on, and it goes like kind of like less pressure or something? It kind of like it really depends down. how long they can milk the IP, right? Yeah. We'll see, I guess. Okay. The um. Okay. Yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, 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 go ahead. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to go on to this too long. Like the the real litmus test will be the next spinoff they do, and if that yeah. does well, like that'll probably determine the direction of how much uh, this is going to get played out. Oh, did I, t- did I tell you guys that uh, George uh, bought a railway? I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Throwing the money around. Yeah, that's kind of pretty cool. Like okay. Uh, well, track? thanks, guys. We'll uh, we'll be back. We can take chat in the after show about that. I'm just going to formally end. But uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks for checking us out on Bastards of Kingsgrave at WordPress.com on Podcast Vice and Fire, Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Amin. See ya. See Thank ya. you. See you guys. Bye. Do you have a question about the railway? <laughs> I have a lot of questions about that. As hey, if Mar- he bought like a Martin wants a, or wants he one. bought a track? He, or bought, a train he, bought, or... he bought the, the, the company or, or whatever that like, runs the railway. There's a specific railway going from Santa Fe to somewhere. It's like a local railway. Oh. And he, he joined with a few other investors. I think it was something probably like, you know, going out of business or something. And he tried to revitalize. Just the same thing. He revitalized the theater in Santa Fe. Just, so. He's playing out his dream to be a railway tycoon. Yes. It's, only it's in his name right there, George yeah. R.R. Yes. <laughs> I can imagine him in his little conductor hat. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's not that, that dissimilar. Well, when, this, like, when I saw that, I, I, I posted on Twitter. I was like, I thought I would have bought a, a steamboat first, but I guess there's no uh, river or steamboats nearby the, available for Desert. purchase. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Cool. So if you take that train, you can get uh, your book signed or something, or there'll be, there'll be something ice and fire. Related to it. Well, I do have my tub of baseballs ready. Yeah.
Uh, what, one thing, quick thing, oh yeah, same time of baseball. One thing, quick thing before you go, because I was actually listening to um, uh, our first Comic Con uh, episode when uh, we were at Comic Con. We met George. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, that's pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. You guys listened to that mm, back yeah, in the yeah. day, right? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I didn't. I felt like, yeah, I can't remember what it was that you guys wouldn't tell us, but like <laughs> in the middle of the episode, like you guys wouldn't say something, and I fucking was like, I, I mean, like I barely, I, I haven't talked to Mimi in years, and I, even at the time, like I didn't talk to Mimi very often, but I was like, I texted her, and it was like, I need to have drinks with you to figure out what the fuck Amin is. Amin won't tell me. <laughs> what was the secret? <laughs> yeah, what is the secret? I don't think there was. I mean, the, the, the secret. We didn't ever have a secret. We just didn't talk about the, everything we talked about, right? That we kind of just get. Yeah, yeah. Details. I don't because I, I, I don't remember. I don't even remember what it was that yeah. I was so on fire to know about at the time. But yeah, well, I'll say I didn't get. I, I wanted to. I, mean, I read all these most of these stories back in the day, and I, I never really got to ask a couple of questions I wanted to ask about the Thousand Worlds. Yeah. Because it was just the way the conversation was going. It would have just been odd to kind of wrench it back and be like, "Hey, George, I need to ask you about." uh like you know sand kings that that building there is that is that really a sand king or something like the the shades like it just it didn't really flow that way uh but in, in retrospect yeah. i probably should have still lasted <laughs> so that's that's the the, the yeah. thought i had actually yeah. today reading these is like yeah. if i ever got the chance to talk to george again which i actually did get also yeah. i would be asking about this stuff because he'd actually want to talk about it as opposed yeah. to song of ice yeah. and fire so i i had that thought too a missed opportunity also to ask him about what a warlock's maze is but yeah that's another thing <laughs> I think he would like it. I mean, I think he would if it was an interview just based on his previous works, which I feel yeah. we could do that. Uh, it would be fun. You could extend the olive branch. Yeah. To his people. The people know us. That's the thing. I need to. Yeah. The problem was HBO was in the way, but now that the show's over, now they're out of the way. To some freedom there a little bit more, but I actually, I, no, I think I, they still earn him. Right. So, but, but I will say this much: I think now is the best time in the world to try to get people for interviews, like this quarantine time. Like, yes. I think this is the time, if any, to try <laughs> to grab them. So, yeah, like as long as you're okay with uh, with um, remote ones, yeah, yeah. George trying to use Zoom on his like star computer. I did watch one Zoom thing he did. It was pretty rough. Did George do a Zoom thing? <laughs> this was a while ago. This was before the the pandemic. It was oh. just it was an interview actually on like a sports thing, which obviously he's more germane to being yeah. on. <laughs> but, he did yeah. like a football interview with a football guy or something. I think. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. He is aware of our uh, of the BOK rereads though, because I think I posted uh, on his journal way back when when we were doing the one on the Super Bowl. Like he had the two football stories. And I, he mentioned that recently, right? Yeah, he did. Like, well, when I posted on his journal, he's like, "Oh wow, those stories are really old." <laughs> he responded, "It's like it's out of date. One of them is out of date, like the one with the simulation thing." So he's yeah. aware of that. Yeah, I read it. I read that post. And he was saying like he wrote it shortly after the Jets won the Super Bowl, which was a very long time ago. Yes, um, but he does listen to podcasts. Like he had listened to podcasts on fire. So there's always a chance that he might actually pop into one of these podcasts like he's he's able to do so hey i'm ready for it let's bring him on yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right that was fun okay good guys yeah thanks well, you guys know, if i need the audio i think i'm okay we'll see yeah i think i'm looks like i'm recording so cool. yeah if you need it let me know cool okay. yes. go check out that uh comic-con episode again though it's pretty good the first bit where we talk about comic-con like it was yeah, that's like the crowning it. achievement of yeah it's just gonna make me it's just gonna make me mad again and now i i don't <laughs> even talk to me me so how would maybe i I'll remind I you what, what your question is i mean i might be able to talk to you guys oh, i could just it. ask you i guess yes. that's a good point yeah, yeah. see what it is i, I, <laughs> Sorry, I, I, yeah, I, I listened to it it didn't seem like there was anything 
like burning that was missing other than we just didn't go into the details of, of the whole yeah thing. yeah but, i'm sure that that was it was just yeah. like some sort of like offhanded thing about like you know something like that but but i remember at the time being like damn it uh-huh. when did you meet mimi i guess just in one of her meetups like back in the day or, or what yeah so mimi and i met at the release at a at a midnight release for um uh what's it called what is dragons thank you yeah <laughs> i couldn't think of the name of the it list. was it's been a million years <laughs> yeah so i don't blame uh yeah, yeah we the met stars at, uh... have gone fain and the man realm was <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. oh yeah. Uh, yeah i mean we met in person i mean like i've been on the forum or whatever and and we met in person at a at a midnight release for the book and like i mean we hung out like i don't know twice three times or something like that um like i watched the uh whatever that award you guys won that kyle accepted or oh, whatever i watched that at her place podcast yeah. Award. yeah cool oh yeah she moved though i think she's she's not in the same <sighs> yeah no no city. she's in a, she has a house now i think um, but but yeah i mean like i haven't i mean yeah i haven't i haven't talked to her in here sometimes i look at mimi's facebook and i'm like this is the ideal person this is what like any human <laughs> aspires to be uh, yeah she's like, very like very normal she, like as a husband she a is baby, a, you know she is a brilliant writer, though. Yeah, her, no, her, her blog is so good. She has a way with words. Yeah, yeah. yeah she needs to go on uh, Twitch and uh, start start doing that. Oh, did she stream Pokemon? I don't know. She should stream something. <laughs> if you become big on yeah. Twitch, there's a, it's pretty good. <laughs> she has yeah, the, she has the capability to do it. Like she's the type of person that could get a following. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think. So. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, see you guys. Yeah, <laughs> right. this is good. See you guys. Appreciate it. Have, Have a good one. one. Yeah. Bye. Hey, how you doing? Hey, no, that is gone. Good. Sorry, I was late today. Okay. It's okay. Was there a Google Doc for this, or or not? I wasn't sure. We had one. Uh, no. I don't think we needed think like. I... A, I mean, we, it's probably the same yeah. kind of questions anyway. <laughs> yeah, it, we get would the be concept. the same. <laughs> Did you guys just read the two stories, or did you read anything further? I only read the two. Yeah, okay. yeah I didn't have a chance to get the other. That's fine. I think we'll just get these I'm, ones done. And... I mean, I have read the other ones, but I, they were a while ago. They're all pretty Everything's short. Always... So we can always re-read. Re, like, it will be easy to reread them when we do subsequent episodes. Yeah, yeah. like Warship and um, other runners are real. They're like six pages each. Yeah. How many stories are remaining? Uh, um, I, I had a look. It's about excluding these two that we're going to do. There'll be seven left over, and then Tough Voyaging, which is a novel. And how do you want to? How are you planning on doing that one? Tough Voyaging is is probably worth it to do each one, like one or two max at a time, because there's a lot in each of those stories. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that'll be broken down in a few episodes. But the other ones, like you can really pair a few of them together. Um. Probably just two more episodes if there's seven, because you can, we can put the uh, the zombie meat house people ones together, maybe with another one, and then a bunch of them are short, right? Yeah, um, some are some are longer than others. I'm trying to think. There's like Star Lady. That's a that's a pretty big one. Hmm. Um, Tower of Ashes is fairly big, but it's not. I don't know. It, it's sort of very similar to. The second kind of loneliness, like it's similar ideas. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about these were the main ones I wanted to do. Um, but I'm sure we could pay the other ones up in different ways. Yeah. So two more and then on to tough and tough. I might I'm in a rush to go on to that. But yeah, 
We got we got the ones that Duncan wanted to do, which is good. <laughs> I was I was trying to figure out the timeline as well. Um, yeah. And I thought Tough Voyaging occurred early, but apparently I started reading the first story and it says it takes place like a thousand years after the Interregnum. So it's probably the, one of the latest stories. Yeah. Whereas whereas these two, I think it mentioned like 800 years in both of them. They, they both take place 800 years after the Interregnum. It certainly feels that way. Well, you have an almost an exact date with the with the glass flower, right? Like it, it really goes into detail with the guy's with life and a thousand years with um, God, what's his name? Caleb. <laughs> Why am I forgetting? Cleronomus. Cleronomus. I say Cleronomus, but maybe yeah. Cler. There's no other way to Cleronomus. I can't say it. It's a, it's a, we it's need a, Roy, Roy, Roy Deltrice can tell us, and whatever he says is the opposite. Cleronomus. Joaquin. So, <laughs> yeah, Cleronymus, Cleronymus. That's probably the way it goes. Yeah, Got I think it. in my in my head, I always uh, put. I don't even. I put an extra syllable somewhere. I'm not even sure where. <laughs> but I was actually looking at it today when I was reading today. I was like, I'm gonna have to say this. So I actually looked at it for a second. I was like, I wonder where that extra syllable that I always stick in there came from. Smart man. <laughs> I think in my head I say like Clara Dormus or something like that, yeah. and it's like I don't know where all those extra letters are from. <clears throat> okay, uh, wait, who's the who's the guy that was? Um, no, Nostr- Nostradamus was the guy with all the prophecies, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Did those end up becoming true? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> not all of them. Depends on how flexible you want to be. I guess. That's right. What, I think one of the funniest lines in The Sopranos was Bobby's like, you know, Quasimodo predicted this. <laughs> Quasimodo. <laughs> and yeah. Tony's like, Notre Dame. Quasimodo was the hunchback of Notre yeah. Dame. They're two completely different people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Are we good to start? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I got my recorder open here. Okay. <laughs>